Uh, Before we read this passage, though, let's pray and ask for God to help us to listen to his word today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word and the ministry of your word among your people. Thank you for a word that teaches us the way of salvation through faith in Christ, that illumines our minds, touches our conscience, um, brings healing and wholeness in our lives, and equips us to serve you for your glory. We need your word, Lord, so we pray that Jesus Christ would Come and minister by the Holy Spirit his word to us. And enable us to see the the riches of your gospel in this text. And we ask that you would cause our hearts to burn within us because of the privilege of fellowship with Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. Let's hear God's word. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's think about this story Under four parts. The prosperous man, the problem, the possibility, and the promise. So the prosperous man, the problem, the possibility, and the promise. Let's think first of all about this prosperous man. There are three things that we can say about him. First of all, he's sincere. Sometimes we have too negative a view of this rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus, I think, with a sincere question. Actually, Mark tells us that he came running to Jesus and kneeling before Jesus. He asks him this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't think we should make too much of that word do. I think he's saying, Jesus, what's what's the deal? How do I get eternal life? 
Wouldn't you love it if someone came to you and asked you that question? Think, okay, here's, here's one I can answer without messing up. <laughs> he also says, though, uh, of Jesus, good teacher. Now, you know, some people take the view that he's just trying to flatter Jesus. And, and for sure, the man doesn't know the half of what he's saying. But you notice how Jesus responds to it. He, he presses the man to, to think through what he has just said about Jesus. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And, and if you call me good, then it follows that I am more than just your average rabbi. And, and therefore, the, the claim that Jesus will lay upon this man's life in just a moment makes perfect sense because Jesus is none other than the Son of God come in human flesh, worthy of our worship, devotion, and wholehearted service. But there's another reason, I think, for taking the man's question as a sincere question. Mark, again, he, he tells us that Jesus looked at this man and he loved him. Now, of course, Jesus loved all kinds of people, but Jesus had little tolerance for religious hypocrites. But Jesus, as you, you see him interact with this man, he, he doesn't deal with this man in the way that he often dealt with the, the religious hypocrites who approached him and asked him questions in order to entrap him. Jesus responded to this question as if it were a sincere question, and he loved this man. So the man is sincere, but another thing we should say about him is he's also really, really undiscerning. He says about himself, I've, I've kept all of these commandments. I've kept these, this list of commandments from the Ten Commandments. As Jesus lists them off, he's listening and saying, got it, got it, got it, got it. Got, okay, I've kept all of those commandments from my youth, Jesus. So he's not really discerning. He, he lacks an honest self-awareness. He hasn't thought through the deeper heart matters of the law of God. He, he seems to be completely ignorant of, of what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, okay, you haven't committed adultery. How about lust? You haven't murdered anybody? Tell me, how, how's your anger he seems to be totally unaware of these deeper heart level issues. And he's just thinking, okay, I haven't, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered anybody. I don't steal. I don't lie. I honor my parents. Check, check, check. Got it. I'm in. So he's undiscerning. And as we'll see, he's actually, he's actually serving an idol. So he's sincere. He's undiscerning. And thirdly, of course, he's rich. Jesus knew he was rich. That's why he gives him this very specific personal call to discipleship. Sell all that you have. Distribute it to the poor. Come and follow me. You know, Jesus must have known by... How did he know he was a rich man? He must have known just by looking at him. By the way he was dressed. By the way he carried himself. By the way he, he spoke he took one look at him and he said, ah, I know something about you. You're rich. Now let's look, look then at the second part of the story. The problem. The problem of this passage is summarized by Jesus in verse 24. 
how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The man had not really kept the commandments, and Jesus knows that. So what does Jesus do? I think what Jesus does here shows us the wisdom of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, you know, if somebody came to you and asked you this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think our tendency would be to make a beeline to the call of the gospel. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus takes this man to the law of God. He says, you know, the commandments. And he lists five of the six commandments from the second table of the law. And the rich ruler, as he's, as he's listening, he's saying, I can check that off the box. I can check that. I can check that. But then you see Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. We're told multiple times in the New Testament that, that greed is idolatry. So follow through what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying, in effect, okay, you have called me good. No one is good but God alone. So let's see where your heart really is. You lack one thing. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. Serve me, not your wealth. And just like that, the man's heart is exposed the rich man can't make it past the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments. To have no other gods. Jesus, you know, he's not doing this to shame this man and, and just expose him for the sake of shaming him publicly. Jesus wants this man to follow him. Jesus loves this man, but first, as an act of love, Jesus must expose this man's idolatry and he must come face to face with it. But when the man heard this in, in verse uh, 23, he became very sad because of his extreme wealth. And he turned his back on Jesus and walked away sorrowful. I think here we're meant to understand what Paul talks about elsewhere as worldly sorrow. Not a sorrow that led him to repentance, but a sorrow that actually led him away from Jesus. He turned his back on Jesus because he chose his wealth over Christ. You see, the love of money was the Lord of this man's life. He knew that giving up his wealth was the one thing he would not do to follow him. So listen, dear friends, listen to this. If we, if we surrender everything to Jesus, but we hold back one thing that is most precious to us, then we haven't really surrendered to Jesus. You may say, Lord, take my life and let it be. You know, I want to follow you, but I'm not giving that up. I'm not surrendering that to you. I will not surrender my my wealth or my relationships or my, my sexuality or, or my profession or this desire that I have. I will not surrender that one thing 
And this passage is saying to you that Jesus looks you in the eye and he loves you and he says, leave that thing behind and come and follow me. And the question for us is, how do we respond to that call of the gospel? Do we leave that thing behind for the sake of following Christ and gaining even more? Or do we turn our back on Jesus and walk away sorrowful because that's one thing we cannot, will not give up? Some of you know that song, uh, I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. Meatloaf, you know, okay. I don't know anything about the song. I just know that one line. So I don't know what the that is in that song. Not commending it. But that one line, I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. That is how some people approach Jesus. I will do anything for Jesus, but I won't do that. I will give up anything for Jesus, but I won't give up that. I've got this one thing. Everything else is his. All for Jesus. All for Jesus. But not that. And the that for many people. Is wealth and possessions. It, it is an idol. That keeps many people. From truly trusting in. And following Christ. So just think with me for a minute about. What it means to have an idol. You know, an idol, an idol in, in the Bible, an idol is a false god. So what does it mean to have a false god in your life? What do you want from a god? You, you want salvation. We can think about salvation in you know, broad general terms here. If money is your idol, then you actually think in your heart of hearts that money is the ultimate solution to your problems. That it can save you. Money will, money will make you happy. Money will give you fulfillment and satisfaction. Money will enable you to live a happy and full life. And therefore, if you lose money, if you have to give up this idol, then you will feel like you are losing everything because wealth is your God. What else do you want from an idol? You, you want security. So you think, okay, I've got lots stored up in the bank. I, I have a house. I have assets. I'm, I'm working on a good retirement plan. I'm secure. But doesn't history teach us that the security of wealth is nothing more than a myth? It does. Stock markets can crash. You can, you can lose your job unexpectedly. Who knows what will happen to Social Security 30 years from now? Now, of course, I'm not saying, we're not saying here that we shouldn't plan for the future. But if money is your God, you actually believe you will have peace and security so long as you have money without trusting in God. And that's idolatry. What else do you want from God? You want significance. And you think money will give that to you. If you have money, you can, you can show how significant. You can show off how significant you are with the stuff that you acquire. People want to be around you. People, people want things from you. People respect your opinion. People, 
People want to be with you and people want to be you. That's what we tell ourselves. We think that we can gain significance with wealth because we do not see things as God sees them. So with an idol, you want salvation, you want security, you want significance, and inevitably you serve your God. What does Jesus say? Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other or vice versa. Man cannot serve both God and money. In other words, you can't have, you can't have Jesus as your full-time God and money as your part-time God. So what happens then when you serve money? Well, we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not that money is the root of all kinds of evil, but that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And the person who loves money, without even realizing it, the governing principle of their life, when they wake up, they're thinking money. Money, money, money. I've got to make more money. I've got to secure more money, more possessions, because their hearts are ruled by lust. So what comes forth from the heart in love with money? Paul says all sorts of nasty stuff. You'll you'll lie to, to get or to keep money. You'll be selfish because you don't want to give it up. You may buy things that you can't afford, again, because you're driven by the lust of your own heart. You You might neglect your family to make more money. You might drift from the church and the fellowship of God's people because money is more important than those things. If you're a business owner, you might not compensate your employees fairly. You you might sell people bad products and on and on and on the list could go. But so much of what we see in the world that is just evil is rooted in the love of money. So when money is your God, you're you're saying it saves me, it gives me significance and security, and therefore I serve it. That was the rich man. But that can be a problem for anyone who lives in a time of abundance of possessions. People like you, people like me. It becomes an idol. And Jesus is crystal clear about the problem In verse 24, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, there is a universal lesson here. Yes, there's a specific personal word to this rich young ruler. But Jesus is saying, okay, disciples, listen up. There is a general lesson here that applies to all people. He says, here's the lesson you need to know. It's hard for the well-off to get into the kingdom of God. That's not just true for this man. It's true for anyone like this man. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How hard? It's actually easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. That's a striking image, isn't it? Jesus is speaking in terms that people of his day would have understood. It would be like, saying, you know, take, take one of the trucks out there in the parking lot. It would, be, it would be easier for one of those giant vehicles to pass through 
the whole of one of these buttons on my jacket than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying. And we're not saying, again, we're not saying that wealth is bad in and of itself. As Christians, we confess that God is the giver of all good gifts. Just trace that through scripture for a moment. He didn't, he didn't create a barren garden. He created a lavish Eden. When he was leading his people into the promised land, it wasn't a land of uh, you know, beet, juice, beet juice and uh, Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Sorry for those of you who like Brussels sprouts. It was a land of milk and honey. It was a sign of good things. A place of abundance. You look at the new heavens and the new earth and it's depicted as a place of prosperity. And so we're not dualists who think material things are bad in and of themselves. We receive them with thanksgiving. But we also recognize that when you have prosperity and an abundance of possessions, there are dangers. So how are you, think about this, how are you going to be rich in faith when you are already rich in possessions? How, how can you trust Jesus for everything when it already looks like money has given you everything? How, how are you going to give up everything to follow Jesus when you have grown so accustomed to having everything? See how difficult, how difficult it is, Jesus is saying, for the well-off to enter into the kingdom of God. Left to ourselves, Jesus says, actually, it's impossible. It's not going to happen. No one would enter the kingdom of God. No rich person would ever give up all that they had to follow a Jesus who says, come to me, take up your cross, deny yourselves, and follow after me. And so it's impossible without God. And that's what leads us then to the third part of this story, the possibility. The possibility with God. What Jesus said astonished the disciples. Again, they're thinking, okay, if, if wealth, generally speaking, is a sign of divine favor, which they had reason to think that, and how things worked under the Old Testament economy, if, if wealth is, generally speaking, a sign of God's favor, and the rich cannot enter into the kingdom of God, the disciples are saying, then Jesus, who on earth can be saved? What hope is there for any of us? And Jesus responds to that and says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then, you know, following right after this passage, I think this connection is often missed because you've got this interlude of Jesus Luke reminding us of where Jesus is at and where Jesus is going he's he's going to Jerusalem he's going to suffer and die and on the third day be raised but then what comes right after that the story of Zacchaeus the story of Zacchaeus the tax collector what is Luke doing he is giving you a real life example of a wealthy person entering the kingdom of God. He's saying, here's the impossible happening. Here is a camel passing through the eye of the needle. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you've, you've grown up singing the songs, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. It's a cute story. 
but there's so much more for us to appreciate about it. Because Luke is telling you about how God does the impossible in the lives of the wealthy. Here's Zacchaeus, this wealthy tax collector who has stolen from people, filled his own pockets, taking extra for himself. And Jesus comes to town and the Lord has done some work in his heart. And he is committed to seeing Jesus. But he's just a short little guy. And he can't see over the crowd. So he runs ahead of the crowd and he climbs up in that tree waiting for Jesus to pass. He's just got to see Jesus. He doesn't doesn't care if he will be shamed and embarrassed and mocked at this point. He's, He's forgotten about all of that. What's really important to him is meeting with this Jesus. Yeah, Jesus comes along and calls Zacchaeus down from the tree and says, get down from there because I'm going to go dine with you at your house. And Zacchaeus joyfully receives Jesus, takes Jesus back to his home. And you remember when they're there, he stands up and he says, Jesus, I am going to give away half of my possessions to the, to the, to the poor. And anyone I have defrauded, I am going to return it to them fourfold. And Jesus says, you're saved. Salvation has come to this house. The camel has gone through the eye of the needle. So the question to ask is, what is the difference then between Zacchaeus and the rich ruler? I think the answer in short is Zacchaeus trusted in Jesus And began to follow him. And as a result of that. He had a transformed attitude. Toward his money. That's evidenced. And how he joyfully welcomed Jesus. Into his home. And then said I'm giving it away. Half of it away to the poor. Fourfold to those I've defrauded. And Jesus says salvation has come. To this house. Because that kind of attitude. Can only come but by faith. But his faith, you see, is, is, is evidenced in what he did. Care for the poor, restitution for all he had done wrong. This actually, I think, echoes what John the Baptist was saying at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, back in Luke chapter 3. You remember that story, John the Baptist is preaching to the, these crowds of people, calling them to, uh, to, to repentance and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so these people ask him, John, tell us, what does that look like? And John says to the crowd, for those of you who have two tunics, give one to the person who does not have one. Do you tax collectors, stop taking extra, stop stealing from people, take what you're only supposed to take. Roman soldiers, stop extorting people and abusing people, and taking money from them, and be content with your own wages. He doesn't say tax collectors stop collecting taxes. Soldiers stop serving in the military. He says your lives need to be transformed. You see, the rich are saved like anybody else, by faith alone. And it is a faith that is in keeping with repentance. A faith that transforms 
your relationship to money and possessions so that now your life is is marked by honesty, generosity, contentment, and a willingness to follow Jesus no matter the cost. So the possibility, what's the possibility? The possibility for all well-off people is that God can give you a faith and bring you to a repentance that leads you to surrender everything to Jesus and completely change the way you relate to your possessions. That's the possibility. Let's go to the promise here. The last part of this passage here, we see the promise Jesus gives to his disciples. And the promise is that when you give up everything to, to follow Jesus... You will always receive back more than you gave. Verses 29 and 30 here. Anyone who leaves home or family for the sake of the kingdom, he says, you you will receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You're going to get back more now, Jesus says. What? What? We get the other part, the eternal life, that in the age to come, instead of eternal death, we get eternal life in the presence of God and communion with God and life in the new heavens and the new earth where there is no longer any sin, sickness, or death, or sorrow. We get that. But, but you gain more now? Is this, is this some sort of prosperity gospel text? You know, give away and God will bless you with even more possessions. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Listen to what Jesus is saying closely. I think this is what he's saying. You know, coming after me, following me, may mean losing family relationships. It may mean losing other relationships. It it may mean leaving family members behind because of the call that God places upon your life. It may mean giving up property and and assets. But Jesus is saying, no matter what you give up to follow me, it will be more than made up to you by all that you gain by being one of my followers. So you may lose family relationships, leave family behind in obedience to Christ's call. But, but what? But you are adopted into the family of God. Having God as your father and Christ as your elder brother and a whole host of people as a family. Isn't that what we see unfolding in the book of Acts? You you see people in the book of Acts in a hostile environment turning their backs on the cultural and religious expectations of their day to confess Jesus Christ and it costs them everything. It cost them their family. Some of them, it cost them their jobs. But what happened? They were brought into the community of God's people and no one within the household of God who was living responsibly and working faithfully went with needs. They were cared for. They were provided for by by God's people coming together to care for one another. That's one thing I think we see in this passage that, you know, you may, you may have to leave people or places behind to follow me, but you gain a family. But I think Jesus is saying something more 
than simply what we gain in our relationships with one another in the family of God. He's also talking about, I think, what we gain from himself, what we gain from Jesus himself, which more than makes up for anything we give up or leave behind in this life. So you see, even if you lose everything in this life, you still have Jesus. And with Jesus Christ, you have peace with God, reconciliation with God, a living hope, eternal life, the the promise of the new heavens and the new earth, the assurance of a resurrection body that will never see decay or sickness, and on and on and on and on we could go. The, the things that we gain in following Jesus Christ. And the reality is, dear friends, that no matter what you give up in this life, no one can take away the inheritance that belongs to the children of God. And so Jesus is ending this passage, this, this encounter with a message of hope. He doesn't say, oh, you dumb, stupid, rich, wealthy people. He looks you in the eye And he loves you. And he loves the well-off enough to challenge them and say, Do you trust me? Do do you trust me that I I can make up for all that you give up to follow me? Come and follow me. Leave leave this behind and receive freely everything that I have purchased for you. Give, Give of your wealth and it will be the best investment that you make in your life. So I think as we look at this passage together, it it raises some questions that we we ought to ask ourselves. First among them, what's, what's my attitude toward my money? Have I taken an honest look look at how I spend it? What is what does the spending of my money say about my faith? Or the lack thereof. Where's my security? Where's where's my significance? And who or what am I serving? Friends, I want to say this with complete pastoral gentleness. But it just has to be the case that some of us struggle with greed. It just has to be the case. That we serve the idol of money. And yet, it's one of those sins, it's one of those sins where, I, I, I should have asked Dave this before standing up here, and I'll just put it this way, in my short ministry as a pastor, I've never had someone come up to me and say, Pastor, I, I really need help. I'm struggling with greed. You know, you've got people who come up to you and say, I'm, I'm uh, struggling with this sexual sin. My marriage is on the rocks. I've got this conflict. Can you offer some advice? Um, Having money troubles, whatever. But I've never heard of a single person going to someone else in the church and saying, brother, sister, will you help me? I'm greedy. And I think that's probably a sign that this is a blind spot for us blind spots in the time and the place in which we live. We all have blind spots. So let's end with this. Look to Jesus 
who for our sake became poor. Who actually, he came in order to give up everything so that he might gain more. And Jesus is is calling us to trust God that he would do the same in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. And Lord, we pray that you would convict us of sin. We're not after a false guilt because we own a house or cars or anything like that. But we know there's real danger here for us because we barely think on these things. So Lord, would you please take this word and apply it to our hearts and our lives and enable us to answer the call of Jesus wholeheartedly to surrender everything to him and to begin to follow him and to enjoy the gain that we receive as we trust in him. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.